You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Once again, good morning and thank you so much for joining us for our online service. As we know, today's the first Sunday following Easter and actually... What I found out is that in Anglican or Eastern Christian traditions, this Sunday's come to be known unofficially as Low Sunday or Empty Pew Sunday. And the reason for that unofficial nickname is because, you know, usually everyone and their dog shows up for Easter Sunday, but then predictably the attendance plummets the next week. Thus the name Empty Pew Sunday. Uh, and I feel like that name's uh, especially fitting for today because due to this pandemic, right, most of the church buildings around the world and therefore the pews and chairs are all sitting empty this morning. And, and it's saddening to not only think about, but to experience firsthand. But in a sense, as we as we step back into the book of Daniel, this experience we're going through right now actually helps us relate on a deeper level to what Daniel went through. What I mean is this, this loss of community uh, and our inability to worship together as the body of Christ is exactly what Daniel's feeling as an exile in Babylon. He's been taken from his home. He's been separated from most of his Jewish community. And to top it off, he knows that God's temple in Jerusalem is, is not only empty of faithful worshipers, but has long since been destroyed and plundered by the Babylonians. So we can relate to that on a new level now, even as our place of worship also lies empty and dormant this morning. But yet, I'm still filled with joy because at the same time, and, and just like Daniel was forced to do, we, we haven't let this exile stop us from glorifying God. Instead, we've continued our worship and praise within our homes until the day we get to meet together. And, and in the same vein, th- this whole situation has, has also deepened my, my longing for the day when Jesus returns and, and all things are made new. Our, our community group had a meeting this, this online this week, and, and someone from my group said, yeah, I'm done with, with all of this, with all of this disease. Jesus can come back anytime now. And, and I hear that. I agree with that. Even more than ever, I'm anticipating and longing for that glorious day when Jesus returns triumphantly to crush all that's evil for good. And as we jump into Daniel 7 this morning, Daniel chapter 7 this morning, we'll find that this is the prophetic vision of victory and promise which God shows to Daniel one night while he's dreaming. And it's this vision or dream which we're going to take a look into this morning. This vision of triumph and hope. But yet, even while it's hopeful, when Daniel initially has this dream, he says it's, it troubled him. It troubled him in his spirit, which is kind of shocking because he's normally a steadfast and resilient type of guy, but not after he wakes up from this dream, which means it must have been an intense and crazy dream. And I'm sure it was. I, I mean, it's an apocalyptic dream all about what's going to take place in the future. And, and as we'll find out, it, it starts off with, with crazy looking beasts who are ruling over the world. And one of them is persecuting God's people. This certainly sounds troubling. If, if I'd had, had that vision myself, 
I'm sure I'd have woken up in a cold sweat. But yet, even though he's initially troubled, we learn that this vision from God is actually meant to assure him of God's plan for absolute victory over evil. And this is ultimately, and we have to understand, this is ultimately the purpose of apocalyptic prophecies in general. Not to scare us, but to prepare us for what's going to come, for what needs to come, and to proclaim to believers and non-believers that God will win, that in the end, righteousness and justice will prevail. As Ian M. Dugan summarizes, Biblical apocalyptic prophecies show us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of God and of his Christ. This revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery and has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. It thus proclaims a theology of hope to those whom the world has marginalized. It reminds us that God is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. So as we get a general overview of the passage today, let it be an encouraging reminder for us that, that, we're, that though we're facing the effects of a fallen world right now, this isn't how it always will be. Even as we're given his strength to persevere today, we also know that one day soon we'll overcome through Christ. As it says in the book of Revelation, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Anyways, because this, this passage has an apocalyptic language and prophetic imagery, I'll warn you, it might sound weird and a little bit crazy sometimes, but please bear with me. We'll try to make sense of what we can in the short time that we have this morning. We can't go through everything or talk about everything, so I'd also encourage you to read and pray through it later if you have the time. So let's take a look at the first part, the first half of his dream, which is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. This is what it says. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. And suddenly another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. While I was watching, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and was given authority to rule. While I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful, and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. There were eyes in this horn like a man's, and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. 
All right. So Daniel calls this a dream, but it sounds to me more like a crazy nightmare, right? There's some crazy, weird things going on here. And, and, and it starts with what he calls the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. In those days, the, the Mediterranean Sea was known as the Great Sea. This was also the main water mass used for uh, communication, military conquest, commerce, and trade between nations. So, so this could be the sea that, that, he's, that he's seeing in his vision. But I'd argue that the imagery of the wind and sea goes deeper than this. First of all, in the Bible, wind and crashing waters usually represent moral, political, or doctrinal chaos and disorder. And secondly, in the same way, a sea is often used as an allegory for the human race. The idea here being, as Dr. David Jeremiah writes, the Bible often refers to the sea as masses of people. When Daniel in his vision looks at this great sea of humanity, it is being blown from the four corners of the earth, depicting political strife and uprisings, wars and bloodshed among the nations. He sees the nations in unrest which is the everlasting human condition. The Apostle Paul also uses the same imagery in Ephesians when he encourages the believers to grow in Christ so that they'd no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so this is how the dream begins, with, with a raging sea, nations and humans in unrest. And then out of this image of a windy and stormy sea, Daniel sees these four large beasts emerge from it. And I'll be honest, there are a lot of theories and conjectures and ideas out there about what these beasts represent. But what we do know, according to the interpretation given to Daniel later in the passage, is that these beasts are meant to represent or be images of kings, of empires that will reign in the world before the end of days. As, as the interpretation given to him in Daniel 7, verse 17 says, These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. And in fact, there's also a case that, that can be made that this dream seems to parallel King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the giant statue of metals that he has in, in Daniel chapter 2, which, which Daniel interprets for him. And, and that these kings or beasts in Daniel's dream here actually correspond to the, the empires in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which were Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and Rome. Only this time... We're seeing the kingdom. We're seeing the kingdoms from God's perspectives, not from man's. Not as glorious statues of, of metal and power, but as beasts, spiritually set against God, set out to devour the earth and one another in their sinful dominance and pride. In other words, these beasts and, and horns ultimately represent and rule over all that's evil and sinful in this world. And we've seen this theme come up already when when King Nebuchadnezzar was turned into the likeness of a beast because of his prideful arrogance against God until he was humbled. Anyways, particularly troubling to Daniel, though, as, as he later remarks in the passage, was the description of this fourth beast. This frighteningly 
indescribable beast that's different than the others that has iron teeth and, and ten horns who, who grows this this little creepy and little weird horn with two eyes and a boastful mouth. I don't know what's going on there. Again, I'd be I'd be troubled if I dreamt this as well. This is all super weird and creepy. I think I said that already multiple times because it is. So no surprise, Daniel asks, you know, what does this all represent? What's going on here, God? And the answer he gets from a messenger of God later is that this fourth beast will become ruthless and powerful in the world, more powerful than the other previous kings. This fourth beast will eventually branch off into becoming multiple smaller kingdoms. But then three of those kings will be defeated by another king, which again is represented in his vision by that creepy little small horn with eyes and a mouth who's constantly boasting in himself in his own glory, who has also set himself completely against God and God's people. And this little horn of a king is also known throughout scripture by many names. He keeps being brought up. In Daniel, he's later referred to as the ruler to come and a fierce looking king. And in the New Testament, he's referred to as the man of lawlessness, a beast. And of course, the name most of us are probably familiar with from Revelation, the Antichrist. And this Antichrist, according to Revelation, will gain power and and influence over most of the earth and will set about destroying and persecuting God's people in the last days. And the truth is that we could spend hours, days, weeks, decades trying to figure out who these beasts represent and who the Antichrist is or when the end times will be. And and that's fine. It's good to have those discussions, but we don't don't have time for that today. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand all of this anyways. And and really, the point of all this isn't to to predict or, or freak out about the end times or even to point our fingers at certain world leaders like Donald Trump or the Pope and start saying, oh, I think they're the Antichrist. Again, the point of this apocalyptic vision is to remind us that we can stand firm in our faith and trust in God, knowing that that he's not only not surprised by the events to come, but that he's in control of the final outcome, and that he can and is dealing with the problem of evil and sin, that, that he's waging spiritual holy war over these evil and satanic empires of the world, and that through Christ has already declared judgment and victory over them. Just as it's revealed later to Daniel in verses 26 to 27 about the Antichrist, it says, But the court will convene. This is the courts of the Lord. The court will convene, and his dominion, the Antichrist, will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will then be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. So God will win and even hand the kingdoms over to his people as an everlasting kingdom. And the second half of Daniel's vision, the second half of his dream, shows us how this victory of God's kingdom over the kingdom of beasts will come about. Daniel 7, 9 to 14, let's read that. 7, chapter 7, 9, verses 9, verse 9 to 14. It says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing. There's a lot of fire. All coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their authority to rule was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So very quickly then, in, in this vision we see, we, we start with the symbolic imagery of God, the Ancient of Days sitting on his fiery throne in all his glory, clothed in white, which symbolizes his purity and holiness. So this is an image of God as a wise and just judge. Just as one of my commentaries notes, it says, Here we see a judge who has the wisdom to sort out right from wrong, the purity to choose the right, and the power to enforce his judgments. And the judge gets right to it. He immediately opens his books, which which we assume record the, the deeds of humanity, and then without delay, he casts this evil beast into the fire. And this is similar to the imagery that we actually see in the book of Revelation as well, when, when Jesus comes again in victory and judgment to cast Babylon into hell. And bringing up hell, I know that it's controversial, I know that it makes people uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable sometimes, but... We have to understand that hell, in, in this case, in this scenario, we, we, can liken it, we can liken it to a quarantine of sorts, for a quarantine for, for all that's evil and destructive, in order to keep sin from infecting the righteous in God's kingdom, just like how our hospitals are, are currently attempting to quarantine the coronavirus from infecting us. As Joshua Ryan Butler writes, God will judge empire. This is the hope of the world. If God's kingdom is to come, our empires must go. If God is to rule on earth as in heaven, then our attempts to rule the earth without him must be put away. God stands against Babylon because God stands for his world. God's righteous judgment is is all about justice, freeing the world from evil and sin. And justice is good. We, we want right to prevail over wrong. The whole earth groans for this. We all look forward to the day when, when all that's evil is overcome, when war, sickness, disease, mourning, slavery, racism, prejudice, hate, and death are no more. So this, this final judgment on evil is our hope. But yet, if our hope was only in the fact that God judged evil... The truth is, we'd also be hooped. Not that we're all horrible beasts or or bad people as well, but the truth is that none of us are perfect or righteous on our own. 
None of us can stand before that throne of a holy God and measure up. And on that note, some people wonder why God doesn't just rid the world of all evil right now and just be done with it. And this is exactly why, because we'd be guilty too. So God, in his love, wants to first rescue us from judgment. As apologist uh, Paul Little points out, if God were to stamp out evil today, he would do a complete job. His action would have to include our lies and impurities, our lack of love and our failure to do good. Suppose God were to decree at midnight tonight all evil would be removed from the universe. Who of us would be here after midnight? So this is a sobering thought, which means it's also good for us that that Daniel's vision doesn't end with, with God's righteous judgment over evil. There's more going on. In fact, the good news for us is that there's someone else who's also being judged before the throne of God, the Son of Man. It says that Daniel sees one who is like a son of man coming in on the clouds. And that imagery presents to us one who is both like a man and yet is also divine. And this son of man is is presented before the Ancient of Days. And unlike the beasts and the horns, he's judged as righteous before the presence of God and and is therefore deemed worthy to be given the authority, glory, power, and dominion over all the earth. He's given an everlasting kingdom where, where peoples of all nations of all the earth will bow down and worship him. And so we have, to, we have to ask, who is the Son of Man who inherits and ushers in this eternal kingdom of God? Well, we know his name is Jesus. In fact, on the night before he was going to be sent to the cross, Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin, which is the council of Jewish religious priests. And while he was being grilled by them, the chief priest demanded to know if he thought he was the Christ, the Son of God. And this is how Jesus answers him. Matthew 26, verse 64. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. For this response, the Pharisees started spitting on him and slapping him. To them he was speaking blasphemy precisely because Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the fulfillment of this very prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. He's telling them that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world who would ascend to the right hand of God in power and authority. But how would he gain this seat of power? Not the way the beasts did. Not through dominating over others or through warfare or destruction or slavery or pride or self-serving, but rather by humbly submitting himself to them like a lamb to the slaughter. As it says in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's the son of man. Then it goes on, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' coronation to the throne was the cross. His crown was a crown of thorns. But because of his obedience, because he was spotless, sinless, even to the point of death, God raised him from the grave and has now deemed him worthy to be exalted at his right hand. And therefore, this means that Jesus is the only one in all heaven and earth who is now worthy to judge the living and the dead, to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now through him, we get to receive grace. Covered in his righteousness, we can now be found worthy before the judge on the last day as well. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So Jesus, the Son of Man, is our salvation and hope from judgment. Because he's already take, taken that judgment, that punishment of sin upon himself at the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. By his grace we're forgiven so that in the coming day we could be exalted with him and reign with him forever. And so that by his authority and power he can also take down the powers of Babylon, of all that's evil, so that he can right all wrongs and make all things new. In other words, it's Jesus who will bring peace and restoration and an everlasting kingdom in the midst of the wind and chaotic waters of this broken and sinful world. Which is not unlike when the disciples were, were caught up in a storm in the middle of the sea while Jesus was sleeping in the boat. They were freaking out and, 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 and wondering how Jesus could be sleeping and, and why he wasn't saving them or if he even cared about them. But when Jesus woke up, he simply spoke to the wind and sea with all authority. He proclaimed, quiet, be still. And the wind and chaotic waters died down. And he turned to his disciples and said, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? So as we live as exiles for Christ in this fallen world... In the midst of the storms of this life, as we come up against the beasts of injustice, of evil, of sickness, deception, persecution, and death, we don't have to be afraid of these things, and neither will we be cast to and fro by them like one who has built his house on a sandy land. Because in Christ, we have a firm foundation. We have a sure hope. We know that Jesus sits on the throne, and one day to evil, he will say, Quiet, be still. So by his, his authority and the power of his spirit within us, in knowing that Christ is already one, we can both live for him and persevere through anything the world tries to throw at us. And finally, we can look forward to when Jesus comes again on that last day, when the beasts will face their final judgment, when all that's evil is crushed, while all who believe in Jesus' name will be vindicated and given eternal life in the kingdom of God.